0: What does the future of scientific computing, or just computing for that matter, look like? Moore's Law, the heuristic that the number of transistors you can pack onto a chip doubles every two years or so. It's a hurdle that's becoming increasingly difficult to achieve year after year. Demand, however, is another story. Specifically, the size of neural networks being run on CPUs and now GPUs aren't growing at the speed of Moore's Law. They're growing much, much faster. Science, for one, has an insatiable appetite for compute, and if we're ever going to hope to meet that demand, we will need a combination of new architecture, new thinking, and possibly even new materials. On today's episode, we'll meet the CEO of a startup that is trying to build their own vision for such a chip, an analog chip, inspired by the synaptic interconnectivity of the brain itself. Founded based on years of research in a University of Florida material science laboratory, it utilizes a specialized network of nanowires scattered randomly onto a field of interconnects. And then they packed up the whole team of material scientists and chip engineers, took them across the country so they could, as a neuromorphic computing hard tech startup, participate in Y Combinator. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. I'm Justin Bricks. The Tomorrow Scale podcast is a series of conversations with the scientists and entrepreneurs who are building the future. We explore cutting edge technologies with huge potential and go deep to understand how these founders and inventors must chart entirely new territory to bring their technology to market. We have discussions on a wide range of scientific frontiers, from life sciences to AI, nanotech and materials, to the very food we eat. And we'll talk about impacts, time horizons, and what's coming next. We'll learn quite literally how science fiction becomes reality. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. I've yet to advertise anything on this show, but I recently had a brand interaction that I thought was worth sharing. The company did not pay for this ad spot. They earned it. Call it a shout out, promotion, ad, whatever. It'll be the only one today. So here it is. I consume a lot of information, curating current events, publications. It's impossible. All of you are dealing with this as well. I started following a little email thread a long time ago. It was written in this concise kind of link heavy format, and it was just the best quick technology news curation I'd ever seen. Digging through piles of technology-related news, general current events after digging through scientific journals all day, was just a non-starter. Well, it's grown a lot since then. It's called Inside.com. No surprise, it's taken off. It's evolved into a subscription service. It's got over 60 highly specialized and thoughtfully curated newsletters now, from current events, latest news, to AI, technology news, design, HR, meditation. They're all highly, highly specialized and focused in current and specific areas. Pick the ones you like. It's just awesome. The team there are great. I highly recommend it. Inside.com. Go check it out on with the show. Well, Gordon Wilson, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me, uh, CEO of Rain Neuromorphics. So let's start very straightforwardly. Uh, What are you trying to build?
1: Uh, Thank you so much, Justin. Really excited to be here and happy to share. We are building um, hardware for the next generation of artificial intelligence. Uh, So we're building processors, microchips uh, that are closely inspired by the brain in their structure and function. And the goal is so we can build much much bigger artificial neural networks that are still very efficient so that's kind of the succinct summary but you know there is this huge space of ai hardware that has been kind of well until recently it was dominated by nvidia and gpus uh, but there is an increasing need for kind of better hardware to run these neural networks because they're so expensive um so inefficient And they're growing at an extraordinary uh, pace in their scale. So at Rain, we recognize that these are challenges if we ultimately want to live in a world where we have kind of dynamic robotic brains. So we're trying to really just fundamentally reimagine the core computing substrate upon which we build all of these artificial neural networks.
0: But your solution is not trying to pack more transistors in a specific space. You are specifically building an analog solution to this.
1: That is absolutely correct. So, you know, an interesting thing that, about the way we see artificial neural networks, you know, the way GPUs, so I'll kind of rewind for just a sec, but so GPUs are the industry standard today Mm -hmm. uh, to build artificial neural networks. And these are uh, digital, many core processors most of us have heard of a cpu a central processing unit and a central process a cpu in a computer is there to do you know some pretty complicated mathematics but it's ultimately doing this on digital logic. You know, at the very bottom of this, it's zeros and ones, binary, on or off. Matrix math. And it, and yeah, and it is matrix math. And so so the math that all neural networks is built on is matrix multiplication. And matrix multiplication is lots of little pieces of, of addition and multiplication. Um, and that's why these GPUs that have many cores are suited to this parallel operation. They distribute that math across these many cores and do more at the same time. But at the end of the day... Neural networks are really, artificial neural networks have originated as kind of this best approximation of what we believe to be doing in the brain, which is fundamentally an analog process. Um, and so for us, moving into analog really kind of is rooted in this neuromorphic inspiration to go closer to a brain-like style of computation, because in analog, when we do that matrix multiplication, we do that processing what we say in memory. So, we actually use different types of materials and something, in our case, called a memristor. That allows us to combine memory and processing and use that unit to both um, store the weights of our system, the weights and parameters of the neural network, but also to calculate um, you know, the signals as they, they they cross those weights, which is really the same way on a fundamental level, the way the brain works, that it incorporates and integrates memory and processing as well. So when we're working in analog, you know, we're really thinking about combining memory and processing into the same units, Uh, And also allowing us to, on that very, very fundamental level, instead of having just zero or one, you have a gradient of information. So you actually have a much, much richer um, complexity of information that you can uh, convey in this very low power and very efficient uh, system when you're working in analog.
0: And so instead of doing your matrix multiplication, you are you are leveraging the, the the natural physics inherent in your physical system. And, and so what are you and how do you do that?
1: So we do that through a few different things. Um, and so my company has built um, a few different technologies. We're developing a few different technologies um, that are exploiting analog in a few different ways. Our first technology, we call it the Memristive Nanowire Neural Network. Um, and this is really... The first, what we call the first scalable matrix multiplication array in analog. So other people can do matrix multiplication in analog and they can exploit physics to to do this um, operation. And basically what this ends up looking like in the conventional way is you have voltages that represent inputs, you have resistances that represent weights, and then you release your voltages onto your chip and they cross those resistances. And then something called Ohm's law happens, right? So you can multiply a voltage times a resistance to get a current, and then you sum up those currents, and those currents become the output. And this is that layer-wise operation in a neural network. So we're not the first people to do that, but we are the first people to reimagine that chip architecture in a way that allows you to fit a whole lot more of those inputs and outputs, the neurons, if you will, into the same chip size,
0: and so rather than a grid, you've gone to much more of a of a, of a network, a natural it, network, so to speak. How did, exactly. How did you do that, and how do you interconnect them? Because I think the the way in which you do that is and creating that um, that sparsity is so fascinating.
1: Yeah. So so the so the conventional chips are called crossbars, and they have those inputs and outputs on the edges of the chip, and then they have a full connection. They fully connect all your inputs to all your outputs through a grid, and it basically looks like a big you know hash. Um, grid, you know, across most of that chip die. What we're doing instead, with our technology, is we tile the inputs and outputs across the entire chip. And the interconnect with those resistances that would conventionally be inside the, 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 the regular layers of the chip, we're throwing that on top. And we do that with a random mesh of nanowires. And this is where things get, you know, kind of you know pretty unusual, you know, because people can uh, historically have not been building chips that have random meshes of wires that are placed on top. But what's incredible is when you have these wires, and these wires have a core and a shell. So the core is a standard metal that allows you to conduct signal from one part of the wire to another. And the shell is made of an oxide material, which insulates the wires from each other, but also allows them when they touch a neuron, to form what are called uh, memristive synapses. Mm. Now, for the your your listener, the memristor is called a, is a memory resistor. It is like the ideal artificial synapse, and it's basically just a resistor that you can change its resistance. It can have a high resistance, which would be a weak synaptic connection, or it can have a low resistance, which would be a strong synaptic connection. And because we're throwing this mesh of nanowires on top of this grid of neurons, we can stack those memory elements, those memristors vertically. It's kind of a almost a 2.5D architecture that we have, and then have a whole lot more synapses in the same amount of space on top of those neurons than you would otherwise. And the really special thing that you pointed to just before is that it's not just random uh, uh, what we have on this chip when you deposit these wires in this random fashion provided they're evenly distributed in their their direction and density you actually get a special type of topology for free and that topology is called a small world network now for those who studied network science small world networks are everywhere Um, most network systems most systems that exist as networks in the real world that are well connected and really big are small world. In fact, this is the literal formalization of this notion of 6 degrees of separation that we're all pretty familiar with. Hmm. So, you know, the human social graph is a small world network. And the what a small world network ultimately looks like is you have lots of – you're likely to be connected to your neighbor. So if you're close by to someone, you're going to have a direct connection most likely. But then you have uh, some but far fewer of these long distance connections. And as a consequence, you have a very well-connected network where things can move quickly from any point to any other point with a short number of jumps but you're not overloading any one of those individual nodes with too many connections. So the human social graph is a small world network, you know, power grids and, um, transportation, um, like roadmaps are small world. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the brain is a small world network mm-hmm. because you want to have an incredibly well-connected network of neurons that allows for the transmission and movement of information from one part of the brain to another efficiently, um, but while still packing a ton of neurons into a small amount of space. And so that principle, that this, this uh, small world network principle is something that we end up getting for free when we actually throw down those wires randomly. And it's one of those really extraordinary insights that uh, kind of has led us, um, you know, to to, to build this technology and build this company. So yeah, so we're very excited about about small world networks and really sparsity in general. This is something that is extraordinary and very promising.
0: Let's focus on more about on kind of some of the things that uh, you can do that uh, normal chips can do and then we'll talk later about what what are some of the things that you enable that normal chips yeah. won't be able to do. So let's Absolutely. talk about some of the things that you can do and and that you've been able to recapitulate that others mm-hmm. might say are you really able to do some of the things that a, that a, a normal chips able to do like backprop
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, backpropagation is the industry standard algorithm that's used to train our deep neural networks. And, you know, for those familiar with the neuromorphic engineering world, you know, most neuromorphic chips that have been built in the past have not been um, really built for backpropagation. Um, that is something that differentiates us from most other folks who work in the, you know, who, who call themselves neuromorphic. Um, and we really wanted to do that because really, you know, backpropagation works. And it has that is the algorithm that has demonstrated all of the most, you know, cutting-edge breakthroughs in computer vision, in natural language processing, um, uh, in generative models and reinforcement learning. So we want to help enable people to continue scaling up. Um, these massive neural networks so the things that our chip can do that conventional you know hardware for deep for deep learning and for ai can do um you know one of those is as i would said back propagation because we want to support and allow our hardware to be used essentially as a layer within a larger neural network we need to be able to support this um, but because we're working in the analog domain and our weights exist as these resistance values within the memristors, we can't do backpropagation, you know, in the, a st- the standard way one does using, you know, just hardcoded digital logic. Um, in our case, when we want to change the weights, we actually pulse voltages um, through those neurons that end up moving uh, ions inside of the memristors. And as those ions move, the resistances were raised or lowered. We have a few other limitations, uh, given the just architecture of our chip that we've had to kind of be creative around. Um, we did just publish on Archive a paper um, that was uh, deep learning in memristive nanowire networks. That shows you you how we end up implementing or or translating vanilla backpropagation into this system of voltages and resistances that you can observe physically. Um, So, you know, we really want to, to do this because simply put, you know, regular backpropagation is working and we haven't seen the limit of scale and size of what these networks are capable of. You know, folks like OpenAI, who we work pretty closely with, are just throwing so much computing power to build bigger and bigger neural networks, and there seems to be no limit in sight for kind of how big and how smart they can get corresponding to that size. You know, bigger brains are smarter brains, it appears to be true, and we have not reached the limit of that statement, uh, certainly in the artificial neural network world.
0: Um, so let's so over any, the kind of the, there's a cognitive dissonance there because being analog, you know, kind of that, you know, your first blush reaction is going to go, how do you scale the analog? And and right. and you got some kind of specific characteristics that allow you to do that. Can you exactly. expand upon scale?
1: Sure, sure. So again, you know, we emphasize scale because we there is this undeniable trend in artificial neural networks that the networks are just getting bigger. They're increasing by about 10x every year in size. Um, the largest neural network um, before 2019, no one had ever built a neural network that surpassed a billion parameters. Um, the NLP models um, that we saw in 2019 passed in, into the billions. Mm-hmm. And then a few weeks ago, Microsoft built an 18 billion parameter model that was also a natural language model. Um, but in our case, what allows us to scale, we are really looking at scaling that core operation that defines. You know, the layer wise movement of information in a neural network, which is a a vector matrix multiplication. And what allows us to scale this is really that fundamentally like physical nature of our chip. You know, when you change from having um, neurons on the edges of a chip to neurons filling the entire die, you know, you have a different scaling constant. You can fit all of a sudden where previously the limit was maybe 4000 inputs, 4000 outputs, We can now feasibly build chips with a million inputs and a million outputs um and 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 an important thing to emphasize the benefit of kind of the core benefit of analog matrix multiplication beyond the energy savings that you have when you're doing this multiplication in the analog domain is that you can actually perform this matrix multiplication in a single time step Where with GPUs and CPUs, you need to do every one of those individual multiplications and additions in that dedicated logic. Uh, Because you're doing in analog the math by releasing voltages across this array, it happens much faster. So we wanted to exploit this time uh, advantage but and overcome the space limitation that existing analog chips faced so because we can now scale well with time which is inherent to analog but have this chip that fits a ton of neurons into a small amount of space that is really kind of that secret that that recipe that allows us to scale so well you know perhaps again if i if you zoom out and you ask, you know, we are, we're, we're trying to solve a few different problems uh, at Rain technical core problems. The first one that we solved was, you know, we looked at analog matrix multiplication. We saw it's fast and energy efficient, but it couldn't scale due to the, ch- the, the physical design of the chip. So we've redesigned a chip that allows us to scale up analog matrix multiplication. The second thing second big thing that we've worked on um, we've just been working on in the last year and this is different from the nanowires but it's an algorithm that will allow us to train neural networks in a fully analog fashion so there's a family of models called energy-based models um, that have been more of a curiosity in the deep learning and ai world Uh, but the idea behind them is you Pick some sort of energy function, um, and you minimize the loss of your network, which is how it learns. At lower loss, means it's getting more accurate. Um, you minimize the loss um, by minimizing the energy.
0: So you're doing like native DFT, density functional functional theory, and within the chip in, itself.
1: In a sense, so but so that what we're really doing is before before what we what we built you you would just simulate this energy function um but now you're tying what we're doing in our analog system there's this natural energy right the natural dissipation of energy sort of entropically across the chip Absolutely. that we can observe you know we can then by observing this dissipation of energy in the chip we can actually infer what the gradient is and so you can now do a have a training uh, protocol that is end-to-end fully analog um, and we've been lucky that we're working with, you know, one of the recent Turing Prize-winning folks um, to develop this because, you know, we see this as potentially, you know, as consequential as our original technology because this would allow you to ultimately imagine, you know, massive, massive networks, but with extraordinarily low energy profiles. Now, did you were know, you able
0: to 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 foresee that, or or was that emergent from this, and you were surprised by it?
1: So this was – and for most of these things, I need to clarify, I need to give credit to my CTO, Jack, uh, who is truly the wunderkind, uh, you know, uh, inventor within our team. You know, in his case, you know, Jack is just someone who I think sees these connections across so many different domains and thinks in truly an, an extraordinary and orthogonal way. Um, you know, he is – The conversations I've been able to help facilitate and I get to be a part of with him, you know, are ones that bring together neuroscience and, you know, analog computation and algorithmic theories in a way that I don't know many, many folks talking about. But it seems like we're kind of, you know, without being... Too self-aggrandizing or that be too overconfident it, it feels like we are really thinking about this in, an, in a very unique way that has gives us a unique insight into how we ought to be deriving things from the brain and applying them and and these energy-based model systems are no no exception to that you know this is a biologically plausible way that might mirror the way the brain learns because the brain must be learning with physics because it's a physics-based system, right? It's a physical system that learns.
0: So let's go back to some similar conversations. I, okay. I want to go into the conversations when when you and and Jack are sitting down and you are you're not in the valley, you're in you're in <laughs> Florida, you're at the University of Florida, Gainesville, I believe.
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: And you're you're tell me about the founding story of of Rain.
1: Absolutely. So the founding story really does predate me um, by some years. Um, gotcha. certainly at least with the, the research. Uh, so Jack and I are both, uh, 28 years old, um, as of, you know, this year. Um, and Jack had been an undergraduate at the University of Florida studying chemical engineering and physics. Um, he had been working in the laboratory of Juan Nino, Dr. Juan Nino, um, mm-hmm. uh, who's a material science professor. And, you know, Jack's story was one of, you know, I kind of a misfit um, that had a very unusual way of looking at the world um, and read a series of books, uh, including On Intelligence by Jeff Hawkins, Rhythms of the Brain, um, and a number of others while being deeply interested in physics. And his aha moment for the nanowire network came when he was looking at a microscope image, at an, at an electron microscope image of um, electrospun nanowires. And to him, this mesh had this almost organic quality. And he had been thinking about artificial neural networks and the various challenges. And that aha moment when he saw this mesh kind of expanded, and I believe that now was about seven years ago. And so he filed those patents. Uh, He filed the patent for the MN3, the patent for a few hypothetical algorithms, he felt he, he he saw he could run on them, and then I ended up meeting him a few years later. So Jack had also started an organization at UF called the uh, DSI, Data Science and Informatics, um, and I had come back to school. Um, I have been a uh, a serial dropout of sorts in my in my t- life. Uh, I think like many Silicon Dolly types, I'm realizing. <laughs> uh, but I had uh, had worked before in political campaigns um, and then fell back in love with math and data science and decided to go and then study math and statistics, UF, to become a data scientist.
0: Gotcha.
1: So when I arrived at UF, I joined this data science student group. Um, I think it was, I arrived the summer semester and or that by the spring semester, I had become president of the student group uh, immediately following Jack um and it was funny that student group was almost like our first startup he kind of built the MVP um it was all about workshops to teach Um, the broader UF community about machine learning and data science. And I really, like, I scaled it up. You know, I wanted, I I saw this is a great opportunity. People really want to learn about machine learning and AI. Um, So let's make these workshops huge. Let's train a bunch of people to teach them. And it was amazing. We had hundreds of people, you know, in one case, 500 people come to a single workshop to learn the fundamentals of Python for data science. And over this time, actually, um, this was when, uh, you know, Jack had a few people a few folks actually reach out to him there were a few investors um, who had invested in another neuromorphic company um, reach out from australia and he was kind of had never been in this situation before and it's a rare situation i think for a lot of folks to face Um, but kind of when he began with these conversations you know he was like you know gordon um, you know i'd like you to be involved and uh asked if i could help you know navigate that first negotiation and you know, then the the summer of twenty seventeen rain was incorporated. Um, so that was June, and you know it's been full time and haven't looked back since.
0: And so you did something that many young companies have done, but it's it's not an easy decision, and not very many, uh, mm-hmm. I guess you'd call it hard science companies make that move. Tell me about yeah. the 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 cross country trek and enrolling in Y Combinator.
1: Yes. Uh, so you know it is. Y Combinator was one of the the best decisions I I think we made as a company, um, and it, but it was a, a tough one. It was a a very tough uh, choice for us to make. Uh, you know, Gainesville was extremely affordable. It was um, you know you you could go a long way comfortably, you know, with a very small amount of money. And we had, you know, it was a, it was a very comfortable place for us to operate uh, because we also had the laboratory where we had been spun out of Juan's laboratory um, there at UF. Um, but basically from that summer, June, through um, the following February, I realized I was flying out to California, maybe once or twice a month, um, and because all of the prospective investors, all of the prospective customers, all of the prospective partners, they they were all here in Silicon Valley. There was just this vast ecosystem that already existed with respect to all of the different, dimensions of our work you know whether it was material science and memristors you know the world's best memristor researchers were there and they had fabricated it first at hp whether it was folks who were building you know giant uh neural networks really sparse neural networks um and pushing the limits of algorithms like an open ai they were there um and customers you know the folks who would ultimately use hardware like ours to deploy these models facebook and google and Amazon. Everyone was here and it just, it was very hard to argue against, you know, such a rich ecosystem. And, um, you know, what also makes us a little bit unusual is we actually ended up meeting Sam Altman, um, who at that time was still president of y-, y Combinator in February of 2018. We met Sam and, um, he actually ended up leading, uh, an investment round in us. So we, he invested, we actually chose to do YC as well. Um, after he invested and we just felt that the network would be very powerful and it would literally accelerate us and give us a lot more mentorship, uh, because we were, we were all first time founders. We relocated uh, at the beginning of Y Combinator in twenty eighteen. Uh, Jack, uh, his girlfriend at the time, his now fiance, uh, and our first employee, uh, a data scientist, all lived together uh, in a house in Millbrae, um, and we're living together until uh, the end of last year. Um, and we, you know, settled down and and did the program. Um, but you know, it is definitely it's unique because. Most companies that go through Y Combinator historically have been software companies, mm-hmm. uh, but they have definitely been making it recently much more geared towards a wider breadth, including a lot of hard tech and deep tech companies. And I think the the person to really credit that to is Sam because he has a really, really, really deep interest in you know the mm-hmm. really hard science problems um, that people want to solve.
0: And what were some of the things that you that you learned or took away from Y Combinator that you? Really had did not see coming.
1: That's a great question. Things I didn't I didn't see coming. Perhaps one thing that you don't expect is you you can surprise yourself on by just how much you can you can achieve and and just get done in a short period of time. And you can also surprise yourself and learn just what ruthless prioritization looks like and feels like. Um, you know, I think most people in most companies end up operating, you know, a, on a comfortable pace that allows folks that that's, that's what we're used to. You know, why combinator it, it, the word accelerator is, is, is literal, like you, know, it literally accelerates you and forces you to think as quickly as you can, as fast as you can, to iterate as quickly as you can, to learn from customers quickly. And to move at that pace. So it's, I think one thing that was surprising or that we learned was, you know, just how much we actually are capable of getting done in a short period of time, which is, um, I think, really invigorating um, and really um, inspiring for us because, you know, it helps us I kind of like tap into that, you know, that psychology, you know, every now and then, uh, or pretty, pretty often, <laughs> whenever we have, a, 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 you know, really pressing needs.
0: How do those conversations differ in your view, having gone through YC, compared to kind of the office hour and feedback sessions that you have with the YC leadership for a hard tech versus a soft tech uh, company, or do you see much of a change?
1: Well, so in my case, in in, in our in my company's case, um, we were actually matched in a small group with other hardware companies. Um, so the the batches have become big enough and there are I enough of that. these harder tech companies that we actually got to be with the people who are closest to our peers. That said, we were the only people building microchips um, and we were also the only people doing like material science, you know, hard science work. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, the conversations don't differ you know, from from between, say the drone companies in my small group meetings um, and mine, they didn't differ as much. And and I think if you zoom out and even compare to software companies, at the end of the day, you know what Y Combinator reinforces, and I think they they get right, is the two most important things that you can be doing as a founder are talking to customers and building your product, uh, and iterating between those things to ensure that you are building something that people want. Um, for us as researchers and, and and in more of this hard tech side like we couldn't you know we can't tape out a chip every week right. <laughs> and send it to a customer and and get the feedback but it, it was still so critical for us to you know to speak to data scientists to speak to customers to understand in our case kind of what the narrative around Silicon Valley and the data science world was about the future of models, you know, like, are do people, how are people thinking about sparsity and how they're going to be using that? How are they thinking about the, just the cost of deployment of these new models that we're seeing and building those relationships and building those feedback loops, you know, was is something that every company does and was no different for us. Um, you know, but. That said, like, you know, there are some questions that, you know, we just couldn't, uh, you know, you, you, you have to find a deep expert. You know, we weren't going to YC to ask them, you know, how are we going to structure these material science experiments? Um, but that said, one of our partners was Eric Migikofsky. Um, He was the founder of Pebble, so the first smartwatch company. Mm-hmm. And he has a really, 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 you know, rich set of expertise uh, around hardware. Uh, so he was also a great resource in that sense.
0: So let's talk about some more of the the kind of the two important things is talking to customers and developing a product. What does your first product look like and what are customers telling you as far as where does your chip fit in the stack? Where does What applications do you think are, are you hearing or the pull from customers for your specific chip?
1: Yeah. So our first product, you know, we wanted something, we want to build something that is going to be integrated into the existing you know, data infrastructure that folks are already using pretty seamlessly, as seamlessly as possible given that the chip itself is pretty radically different Um, and you know when we sort of black box away all of the analog and nanowire stuff what it really is is a giant sparse matrix multiplication accelerator you know you have you put in a really big vector uh you it ends up being multiplied by those weights that are held in those in those memristors and you get another vector out so the way we, this first product is going to be a, uh, an accelerator uh, to offload those really, really big matrix multiplications that would otherwise take an extraordinary amount of time and energy with conventional digital hardware. And it's a PCIe card. So it plugs in to the same slot that you'd plug in a GPU to. It can fit and exist anywhere you want to have a GPU. Um, and you're really just using it kind of as a function call basically to offload the most computationally expensive operation, uh, within your neural networks, which correspond to the biggest and widest layers of neurons. Now, our our flagship customer and commercial partner is OpenAI. Uh, You know, and it's unsurprising that they are the people that are excited to work with us on this because they are also the folks who are perhaps most bullish about sheer scale in neural networks. So, you know, one of their engineers there, Scott Gray, um, has built some Super wide neural networks, you know, neural networks with hundreds of thousands of neurons in and in, in certain layers Which far exceeds what anyone is deploying like at Facebook or Google today Those maybe are at their widest a few thousand neurons mm-hmm. So, you know those types of models that have huge width enable um, capacity so, you know one ism we like to say is 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 depth in neural networks is complexity and width is capacity uh depth adding multiple layers allows us to continue to sort of abstract information and move from you know pixels to lines to shapes to faces um but width allows you to have like a high vocabulary you know inside of a of a of a natural language processing system so you know because our Chip, this co-processor is essentially going to make those really, really wide, high-capacity layers cheap. Uh, we're seeing it really well suited to a lot of these natural language processing applications. Um, so the pull that we see, you know, well, we, we so we're working with OpenAI because in their case they can simulate these networks that you know would cost the, my entire seed budget, my seed round budget <laughs> to simulate, uh, you know, one of these neural networks with a hundred thousand neurons in a layer might cost th- two or $3 million, you know, just to train on its own. So they can simulate these demonstrate, you know, the value and utility of these giant neural networks. And then we can follow along be like, Hey guys, you know, you know, speaking to Google or Facebook, like you've seen what these networks are capable of doing, you know, OpenAI has built it. Now here we are with hardware that makes it cheap. You know, cheap for you to deploy, and the other place, actually, I will say we have also received some pull from is the autonomous vehicle space, which ends up being set, you know, pretty separate um, in my uh, view from the natural language processing world, um, but a really, really, really fascinating set of problems, nonetheless. And I get excited about autonomous vehicles because, to me, it is really a great place for us to begin thinking about machines. In a much more parallel way to to brains and nervous systems, uh, you know, I think the, the the autonomous vehicle will be the first true robot. Um, and in order to make that robot function, we need to give it a full fledged nervous system that has sensors, you know, immediate processing past those sensors, uh, massive sensor fusion, and and then control, you know, uh, system control and movement. And you want to. This is a problem that our nervous system has solved with an ex, with a massive, you know, 86 billion neuron neural network. Um, and now we need to figure out a way to solve that um, in vehicles in a way that's you know efficient and safe. Um, so I love the autonomous vehicle space. Um, it's it. You know, I'll be frank. Most folks. There's no consensus, zero consensus in the autonomous vehicle space about what that robotic nervous system will look like. But it is a lot of fun to, to be part of those conversations and to you know, imagine what those systems, those full nervous systems, are going to look like. But you know, there's no debate that when we ultimately you know reach uh, level four and level five autonomy, and if we want this type of sensor fusion and rapid response uh, uh, and control to be autonomous and 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 energy efficient, you're going to need giant neural networks with high capacity to integrate many dimensions of inputs um, and process them in real time.
0: Can we talk about reproducibility? Two chips with random meshes in between the the the, the nodes of the of the different layers are going to be, essentially run the same model differently no
1: yeah so this is one of the questions you know we've gotten since the beginning and it's you know natural that you look at this and you say well you know you have two random two chips that have random wires that have been deposited you know, how can we possibly, you know,
0: have the performance be minutely different but equivalent?
1: So, an an incredible thing about these chips is they don't need to be physically identical to be functionally identical. Hmm. Um, and one of the um, reasons for this, it, without getting too technical, is that the weights in the network don't exactly correspond to the filaments themselves, but rather. A weight between from one neuron to another neuron is the combination of all the resistances and the wires that might connect those two. So we had have done a, a series of, of, of experiments and research to figure out a way to do transfer learning, to basically take those resistances that we observe in one mesh um, record those, and then upload those to another mesh.
0: Yeah, pre-train uh,
1: those. Exactly, to, to transfer the weights from one mesh to another. And so you can actually have a different set of wires, but provided they are dense enough and evenly distributed across that array, you can download and re-upload a model from one physically different chip to another physically different chip. And we're looking at, I think at this point we can see 99 nine eight percent accuracy chain loss between the two um so naturally something that you know if you're building the world's first random chip you need to have you know quality control and quality assurance um and predictability um so it's clearly something we we care a lot about and and, uh, want to build in
0: you can sacrifice 0.02 percent reproducibility if you're still a million fold larger than the next Closest exactly. Yeah,
1: exactly. And for that's sure. the thing, you know, when, when you can operate at such large scale, you can trade off a lot of other things that for really small neural networks matter a lot more, you know, we can operate with lower precision, you know, we're expecting our members to ultimately, you know, to not really do, go much past six-bit precision in both training and inference but the brain you know operates between five and six bits of precision in in our actual synapses and clearly it works you know and when you when you scale up this kind of system so much just works by virtue of that scale that you can get you get those things for free um you can you don't have to worry about a lot of those other uh variables as much
0: is there anything else that that this kind of a system this kind of a chip Enables. Have you done uh, kind of? Uh, I guess you'd call it mixed chip, where you kind of take a digital and analog, almost in between different layers.
1: Yes. So I mean, your your intuition is spot on. You know, the way our chip will initially be used is really, it's just the the, the multiplication of inputs times weights to output but then you have other operations between layers you know your nonlinear operation your relu or your max pooling operations and those um, with the first implementation of our technology will be done in the digital domain so us we are the same as other analog companies in this regard where uh, the first thing we're making analog is the matrix multiplication and then you go into digital um, to do those other operations and then go back into the analog to do the next layer multiplication
0: just everything's um, fit for purpose where it needs to be
1: yeah yeah and but what's your your question before was kind of what are the other things our mm-hmm. chip can do and you know i am obviously neural networks and ai and the brain are, are are at the the very core of of what we're thinking about at rain but there is another set of problems that When you're working in these intrinsically noisy systems um, and you're working with, you know, when, when when you're working in analog, you can approach problems in a different way that doesn't look at noise as the problem, but actually looks at noise as a tool, a tool to help. To solve some problem. So so constrained optimization problems are a huge class of problems that aren't necessarily neural networks or mu- solved with neural networks, but are these these combinatorially extremely complex problems like Uh, Like, you know, complex routing, traveling salesman problems or complex scheduling, NFL scheduling. You know, I I didn't know that, you know, the NFL has a supercomputer that runs for like a month just to get the schedule right, you know, because there are so many variables and combinations of all these different time slots to ensure that everyone kind of has the is at the schedule that they need. I don't know if
0: that's awesome or sad.
1: I don't know either but you know it's it's incredible it's fa- incredible nonetheless you know incredibly awesome or incredibly sad that it is that it is so costly um but there are so many of these 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 optimization problems we don't really have good computers to solve them and and I think most people have been bullish in the past, recent past about quantum as a way to solve these but you can also use these dynamical noisy analog processors to to approach these problems as well so you know while we are mostly targeting um, the neural network application space you know there's this other set of problems that you know I'm really excited about And, you know, one of our one of our team members who came from the HP team that fabricated the first Memrister um, is also a leader in this space, um, kind of looking at how you harness intrinsic noise to actually uh, solve these problems.
0: When you're deploying this, this is the form factor is going to be the same with your kind of. uh, PCI slots or you're, in terms of the spectrum of the complexity of a deployment, this is not a quantum computer by any stretch of the imagination. This is, you know, de- like a, like a GPU that you're going to slide into a slot in your, in your tower or in a, or in a, at a server form.
1: Right, so yeah, but certainly we are not talking about you know a, a quantum computer that needs a massive room you know just to freeze it down. Yeah, there's you a know,
0: nitrogen doers in the corner.
1: <laughs> yeah, to get to to get to zero Kelvin or close to zero yeah, Kelvin. Yeah. Um, and and really, you know, the PCIe form factor is really just one that we've picked because it's the it's the universal one for for most GPUs today. Right. Um, you know, the the nature of our chip is that. You know, it's a really big neural network in a really small amount of space. So, you know, you could integrate this and put this ultimately for into smaller devices if you choose. Um, We've just chosen the PCIe form factor because that is, you know, what people are most commonly using today for, um, you know, training neural networks with GPUs. Um, But the advantage of doing this operation in analog is, you know, this, the first product ship that we intend to bring to market, you know, we're operating in a single watt, you uh, know, order of magnitude, mm-hmm. where conventionally GPUs are in the hundreds of watts, and most digital processors are. So we have the opportunity to explore a lot of other smaller form factors. Uh, but we want to go to a market where, you know, people are building the big models, which is at the data center.
0: So you're kind of, I guess, layer size per watt is just astronomical compared to a GPU or CPU? As-
1: absolutely. Yeah, gotcha. it is massive. I mean, we are for a single, yeah. yeah, So the numbers that we have, and and we have a few different sets of numbers because it's funny. Some of our numbers end up sounding outrageous, uh, because we've solved this scaling problem. Um, but when we compare to a V100, it was basically, this was an 80,000 by 80,000 matrix. Um, that's 98% sparse. So you can think of this as a neuron, uh, two layers in a neural network. One layer being eighty thousand, at the next being eighty thousand, and the connections in between, you know, ninety-eight percent of those are missing. So it's mostly sparse. Um, But you want to multiply an eighty thousand vector, you know, by all those weights to pass through. So this is the operation we compared to a V100, Um, and we had to build our own library on top of the existing CUDA library to. Performed this operation because naively the gpu just ran out of working memory and failed but when we compared it and again These are all circuit simulations. This is not a chip that has been fully built and fully Demonstrated, you know to 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 watch but in this simulation we were looking at about 150 times faster uh, Than that gpu while still operating at about 40 times less energy so like and this is beginning this this chip again was built in or was was designed in um 65 nanometer where i think the v100 is in like you know 18 nanometer so there's some pretty pretty striking numbers uh and exciting
0: ones you've moved across the country you've been through y combinator um you've raised from some uh, very blue chip investors this is based on a lot of work for coming out of the um, dr nino's lab and, and and the work by jack over many many years what kind of learnings would you have for the folks who are just turning away from that laboratory and saying, "Let's go and and build a company around this technology out of the lab"?
1: Wow. Well, it's a great question, and there have been so many learnings. Uh, you know, the nature of being a an entrepreneur of any kind, um, as let alone a, a, a hard tech entrepreneur, is one that you are are constantly challenged and learning. But If there was one lesson that I really wanted to impress to your audience of folks who are scientists and researchers, it's, you know, you can have an incredible technology that can be groundbreaking and can potentially change the world, but you have to be able to tell its story in a way that is clear and succinct. And you have to be able to abstract away all of the jargon or as much as you can uh, and it's funny as i say this I, I wonder how well of a job i did just now and today doing this but w- whether you're speaking to investors or customers um you you need to be able to abstract away jargon and communicate in with respect to the consequences of the technology and the better you can get you know i have found the outcomes with you know fundraising and customers are sometimes less dependent on The exact, you know, scientific progress we're making in a laboratory and more reflective of I have told the story in a way that clicks for this audience. So, you know. Be prepared to, for people to not get it. Be prepared for people to ask lots of questions and be ready to you know iterate on your story and really keep working. I mean, for me, I am continuously working and iterating to tell the most succinct, most clear and consequential story that you can. Because without that story, even the most promising and most exceptional technologies uh, you know, won't be able to, to grow into companies.
0: It's great advice. It's great advice. Well, Gordon, thank you so much for taking the time today. Uh, it's really fascinating technology, full very early days, even though you guys have accomplished a lot. Um, I wish you all the best of luck uh, in the future.
1: Thank you so much, Justin. This was really a pleasure.
0: So grateful to Gordon for sharing their vision and a bit of their story, traversing the tech with us and exploring the design, and the opportunity and the potential power of brain-inspired neuromorphic chips. This is the Tomorrow Scale Podcast. I'm Justin Briggs.